Now, when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to, me, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, each of us, I guess, will have our own indelible memories of the 2020-21 lockdowns. My wife and I used to cycle around central London in that period, as was legally allowed. And we have a photograph of uh, ourselves, of my wife, in Trafalgar Square at 12 o'clock midday with literally nobody else in the square at all. I think that today is almost unimaginable. One memory for all of us who live in central London, however, was the sirens. And I don't think that can ever be erased. Uh, Morning, noon, and night. The passage we're looking at this afternoon opens with an image of great light for those in darkness, of light dawning on those in the shadow of death, and of death removed. And the passage we're looking at this afternoon concludes with Jesus healing all in Syria, Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, across the Jordan. And so what we're being told is that there was a time when all the hospital beds were empty, where no siren was heard in the street, when the Secretary of State for Health came to the Chancellor and requested a radical reduction in his budget, that there was a time when children with afflictions were healed, when the elderly with dementia were cured, when those with mental illness had mental health restored. And in Matthew's really very graphic language, language taken from the prophet Isaiah, the shadow was lifted, the darkness was dispelled, gloom fled, light shone. Now C.S. Lewis captures it visually in his Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe when Aslan draws near and the snow begins to melt and you kind of think, oh, there's hope. 
The film director, Peter Jackson, in his epic depiction of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, does it musically. You, whenever you kind of head near uh, Hobbit land, the, the music changes. Despair is gone. Hope is restored. Unsurprisingly, when the light was switched on, as Jesus burst onto the scene around 125 kilometers north of Jerusalem, news spread like wildfire. So verse 24 of the reading, his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick. And unsurprisingly, verse 25, great crowds followed him. But it was a day when there were no waiting lists, no appointments at the surgery, no queues outside A&E, no children in specialist clinics, no families gathered round the coffin at the creme. Matthew records it. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, that's verse 23 of the reading there, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. I mean, imagine if this were to happen here. You know, we're situated with hospitals to the north of us, Bart's hospitals to the south of us, Guy's hospitals to the east of us, the Royal London hospitals to the west of us, St. Thomas's. Forget oil protesters blocking the odd by road. You know, there would be beds being wheeled, wheelchairs being pushed, men and women hobbling, the wealthily letting down their sick from helicopters. You just wouldn't even be able to get near St. Helens from the M25 inwards a standstill. And here is the promise of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It's a promise of everything that ruins our world removed, of all evil banished, of every impact of human rebellion against God extinguished, a promise of what Jesus will deliver as king of God's kingdom and what Jesus has demonstrated that he has all of God's authority to bring did you notice that there he healed every disease, every affliction? His fame spread through all Syria. They brought him all the sick. Straight away, I can imagine somebody suggesting, well, that's typical of you religious types. You're, you leverage our fears and sadnesses and posit a future with all these things removed with no tangible evidence. It's classic of the manipulative preaching of fantastical dreamers. Well, hold on. Because this kingdom is long promised. We've made the point repeatedly as we've started our studies in Matthew's gospel. It's one of Matthew's key themes. That this doesn't come just as a bolt out of the blue. This is part of God's long-held promise. And once again, Matthew this week wants us to see the Lord Jesus fulfilling very specifically God's long-promised deliverance from everything that spoils our world. If you flick back to the beginning of the reading, which we've already alluded to, verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. God's promise to deliver a new world with everything that spoils stems from the first two chapters of the Bible. And later, the prophet Isaiah wrote at a time when the original recipients of those promises for a a whole new world with everything that wrecks this world removed, the prophet Isaiah writing at a time when the people of God had rejected God and were under God's judgment, he spoke, Isaiah spoke, of a child being born who would roll back God's judgment on this world. It's the kind of time of year when we're kind of thinking about buying Christmas cards, isn't it? You know that famous Christmas reading, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that passage, which is the passage from which Matthew quotes here, speaks of this son multiplying joy, consigning to the scrap heap every weapon of munition of war, establishing justice and having his reign and majesty increase across the globe for eternity. But in that chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah doesn't just tell us what this son is going to do. He also tells us where he is going to come from, where the light is going to dawn. Isaiah 9 begins like this. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And so when John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus deliberately moves to the west coast of Galilee, to the land of the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, to the town of Capernaum, and then the light was switched on. And the image is a brilliant image, isn't it? You've been up through the night, and suddenly the first glimmers of dawn. And all the fears and doubts that so haunt the pre-dawn, early hours despair, they suddenly begin to lift. You had that experience? And so this coming of a kingdom with all that wrecks and spoils, it's long promised and it's not a surprise when it comes. God had always promised it would come. There would be light when it came. Darkness would be swallowed up when it came. Death would be defeated when it came. The world would be changed forever when it came. And when Jesus stepped into this world, he moved deliberately to the west coast of Galilee to the precise place where Isaiah promised the sun would come from and begin his ministry And the light dawned. 
So it's not only long promised, it's also historically witnessed. You can't uh, jump over the evidence that we have in verses 23 to 25, the latter part of our reading, which describe the activity of Jesus as he prefigures what is going to come in his approaching kingdom. Just looking at it, it's quite interesting how sophisticated Matthew is in his description of the different ailments, spiritual and mental, physical, that Jesus deals with. You know, some suggest that in the pre-scientific days of early Christians, superstitious as they were deemed to be, they simply labeled anything they didn't understand medically as demon possession. Well, that's not the case. Just look at verse 23 and 24 for a moment. He healed every disease and every affliction. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those suffering from epilepsy and paralytics, and he healed them. So epilepsy is distinguished from demon possession. Disease is separated from paralysis. Pain, sickness, affliction, and disease are held apart. And had we been there, we would have witnessed it. As the towns of Capernaum, Chorazin, Rimmon, Megiddo had all the sick healed. The word eschatology means the end of times. It has to do with the end of the world. And one writer describes the coming of Jesus here as being like an eschatological thunderbolt. A picture of the glorious kingdom that he will one day bring. Slightly more straightforwardly, somebody else describes it like this. These healings are signs of the presence of the kingdom, expressions of its reality, in the same way that a snowdrop is a sign of spring. The power and reality which we see in the snowdrop are the same ones which later much more powerfully come into provenance. You see the first snowdrop, there's hope. You see the coming of Jesus, there's light. Long promised, historically attested. It's also logically consistent. The Bible, in the Bible, God tells us that the thing which wrecks this world is our rebellion against God. Our sin demands God's judgment. While our sin is not dealt with, then God's judgment rests over the world. But with the coming of Jesus, the one who is going to deal with God's judgment and pay for our sin, so all that wrecks and spoils this world is lifted in his kingdom. So this is not just pie in the sky when you die kind of stuff. It's long promised, it's historically attested, and it's logically consistent. And may I say it is also, and I'm not quite sure if this is the best way to put it, but kind of psychologically fitting, it fits with what we long for. A day when everything that wrecks this world is gone forever. Don't you long for that? And so here is the kingdom, and light is such a grand word for it. You've got a shed, we have a shed uh, under the pavement, I think you'll probably call it a cellar outside our house, and um, you know, occasional visitors come to dwell there, and everyone's always a bit nervous about opening the door, because uh, sometimes there's a little rustling, 
as a rodent makes its way off to wherever it came from. Tuesday mornings is always Bin's morning for us, so we always have to brave the, brave the rodents and head in there. But there's a wonderful light you can switch on. You switch it on, and all darkness and gloom is gone. Those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. The coming of Jesus changes this world forever. You don't need to live in darkness anymore. The fear of death can be removed. There is a kingdom. The king is Jesus. And there are two implications that I think are spelt out for us here. The first is in verse 17, and the second is in verses 18 through 22. Verse 18, repentance is required. You can see from verse 17 that the Lord Jesus' first recorded public spoken words why they're precisely the same as John the Baptist. Verse 12 tells us that the Baptist is in prison. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus sets about preaching precisely the same message. He doesn't miss a beat. There's no interruption. He comes into the kingdom, into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's been anticipated as king. Remember the family tree. He's been announced as king. Remember the visitation of the angels. He's been worshipped as king. Remember the magi. He has been identified as king. Remember the Baptist. He's been tested as king. Remember the temptations. The Baptist is arrested. The king arrives. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so repentance is required if there is a new king, if you like, on the block. When we considered the Baptist message, we reminded ourselves what repentance is and what repentance is not. Repentance is a changed mind necessitating changed action. I no longer go my way. I no longer live my way. I start living differently. I no longer follow myself. I'm under new command. I have a new captain. I'm under new ownership. I march to the beat of a different drum. Repentance is a 180-degree about turn. Repentance is not merely feeling sorry and then doing nothing about it. Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not making some payment by which to make reparation, but not planning fundamental change. Repentance is not penance. Repentance is not getting a bit of religion for one hour a week on a Tuesday lunchtime. Repentance is not ritual. It's striking that the message of Jesus is precisely the same as the message of John. Some people think or are led to believe that John the Baptist is an austere figure, hard as nails, without a compassionate bone in his body. But Jesus is a soft touch, rather cuddly, who wouldn't demand change. No, the Baptist says the king is coming, repentance is necessary. And Jesus says, I have come, repentance is necessary. Jesus comes as king, you need new management. I need new management. We need to step out of the darkness. We need to come into the light. The king has arrived. He's offering us a place in his eternal kingdom where everything that wrecks our world is gone forever and he rules in all his beauty and goodness. Stop burrowing away. 
into the darkness, is his message. Did you notice that the requirement for repentance is delivered in precisely the same breath as the announcement of light? So we need to insist upon this immensely positive take on repentance. Some people think, oh, he's preaching repentance. He must be sort of a very negative vibe kind of person. No, repentance is coming out into the light. Some people think that if they turn to Jesus, it will wreck their lives. They won't be able to have any fun. All the good stuff will be taken away. And that is precisely not the case. Repentance is stepping out of the dark into the light. Repentance is positive. It's enlightenment. It's not living in the shadows. It's no longer living in such a way as to wreck my life and other people's lives around me. Repentance is returning to the maker. Forgive a childish illustration, but my grandmother was uh, a children's author. She wrote under the name of Elizabeth Noel. If I mention that, I've done it once before in the pulpit here. Somebody came up to me and said, oh, I read one of those books when I was a kid, The Scarlet Runner. And she posited this young athlete who um, was a runner and without asking permission borrowed the coach's, I think it was his father's, precious stopwatch and took it out uh, and then left it and forgot about it without asking. And in the middle of the night, remembered, went back the next morning, found it, realized it didn't work. Tried tinkering around, got into more of a mess. Tried tinkering around some more, got into more of a mess, shook it, banged it and all the rest of it, and then lived with the guilt of it day after day. Where's the watch? Where's the watch? And eventually brought the watch back to the father who, of course, forgave him put it straight. And repentance is coming into the light. Repentance is coming back to the maker. Repentance is coming to the king of the kingdom, turning from living in the darkness. But not only repentance, also discipleship. In light of the king of the kingdom arriving, verses 18 through 22, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So repentance is required and disciples are called. I was studying this passage with a group of bankers down, uh, down near St. Paul's yesterday. And I asked the question, does this mean that you should all leave your bank immediately and go and start working for the church or charity? And it was one of the most animated discussions we have ever had in the Bible study. Of course, there's a big element of verses 18 through 22 that is unique to the particular individuals who are summoned to follow. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are particular individuals with specific roles. First and foremost, they are the apostles, specifically commissioned by Jesus, discipled by him so that they can in turn teach us. They are elsewhere described as the foundation of the church with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. 
So there is much about the calling of these four that is unique. However, at the end of Matthew's gospel, the risen Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And the first thing that he commanded them was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the calling of these disciples is part of the instruction that Jesus commanded them to pass on to us. Does this mean that every believer is to leave their computer screen and become paid-up members of the clergy? Well, no, it doesn't. Does it mean that every believer is to make the Lord Jesus their master and follow him wherever he leads? Well, yes, it does. Does this mean that some will leave their jobs and professions in order to engage in other occupations so that they can make the gospel of Jesus Christ more widely known? Well, in some cases, yes. And I can number any number of people who have decided from this congregation to leave their role in the city and go and make disciples elsewhere. It may not mean we change our employment it will certainly mean we change our employer. It may not mean we change our place of work. It will certainly mean we change our priority at work. It may not mean we change our occupation. It will certainly mean we change our passion. Because as disciples of the king, with this glorious kingdom ahead of us, we have good news for a world living in darkness. And the language Jesus uses is brilliant. He approaches these fishermen and recasts their vision in language they really understand. Were they brokers? Follow me and I will make you brokers between God and man. Were they investment fund managers? Follow me and I will populate your portfolio with people. Considerably more exciting than numbers on a spreadsheet. Were they accountants or actuaries? Yes, they are invited as well. Follow me and you will bring men and women into the profit column of your spreadsheet. How much more exciting. By fishing for men, he means not simply influencing people, but so sharing the good news of Jesus Christ that they land fish, as it were, under God's rule, people. And wonderfully, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you. Which takes all the heat out of it, doesn't it? You follow Jesus, you will become a fisher of men. We must draw to a close. This world, aptly described as being under the shadow of death and dwelling in darkness. King Jesus, aptly described as a great light Right response, aptly described. Repentance, of course. Come into the light. And discipleship. Follow him. And he will make you a fisher of men. Let me pray. Thank you, our Father, that in this world there is hope, real hope. In all the darkness of the world, the Lord Jesus has changed the world forever. Thank you that we have ahead of us to look forward to a new creation with all that spoils this world gone forever. 
Thank you that you deign to invite even us to turn and to follow. We pray that you would grant us the will to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.